today we present the Workforce Disrupted series. Manoj Jana, one of the co-founders of Ramped, sits down with Rhonda Sharp. Rhonda has an incredibly impressive background. She holds numerous degrees, including a master's degree in operations research from Stanford and a PhD in economics and mathematics from Claremont. She's one of our absolute favorite guests to ever grace the Ramped podcast. And Manoj talks to her about a bunch of different things, including how to bridge misalignment inequality in and out of the workplace and what the future of work will look like in 10 and 20 years. You're going to absolutely love listening to Rhonda's perspective on a variety of topics. Please enjoy this episode in the Workforce Disrupted series with Rhonda Sharp. You're listening to The Ramped Podcast, a podcast connecting industry heavyweights with the next generation of talented professionals. We're on a mission to build transparency into the practical realities of your early career by exploring how the world's best did it themselves. Our guidance will help you discover and launch a successful career in sales, technology, finance, and many other industries. Did. <laughs> of course you can edit whatever no but, that, but, that, but that's but that's right though i think and i don't think i'm alone my hypothesis has always been people are intellectually lazy and that's that's okay status quo it's okay i'll fight anyone that says that's not the case we're intellectually lazy unless we don't have to and so you know especially when with with, with critical topics with things that need to be you know dissected and, and analyzed carefully it's so important to look at data. And so one of the reasons why I was super excited was, well, here's someone that's, that looks at data, like you have the training in order to you know, call BS on someone that wants to present things in a different light. And so I was like, this is, this is going to be a fun conversation. Well, I, I should say to you, when you were like, you know, you don't just say things, I, I just say things, right? And and people get annoyed, like things that are my opinion about stuff. And they're like, well, how do you just say that? Like, it's a matter of fact, it's like, okay, because this is my experience. It's my opinion. I get to say that with confidence. But when you talk about people being intellectually lazy, um, I would say to you, I agree. But I think that laziness is because to push against the status quo is costly. Mm -hmm. And I was just saying to someone earlier that when I started Wiser, I didn't start it like most research think tanks to start it, right? So part of that I started because as I always tell people, you know, I was turning 50 and I was tired with, you know, it's going to be that feisty 50 and all of what it means. But folks who knew me were like, yeah, Rhonda, you have always been that person who was pushing and asking the hard questions. Folks think that I'm intimidating. And I'm like, why? And it's like, because you don't do small talk. And I'm like, but I will do small talk. But my small talk is with the purpose. Like, I'm really going to ask you some stuff, even if we might be staying in line in the grocery store. Yeah. I'm still going to ask you like real questions. But I was reading these reports and kept noticing that there would be like, it would say women and then it'd be comma, except black and Hispanic women. And there was no conversation about Asian women. There's no conversation about Native American women. And I have a colleague, Marlene Kim, who's at the University of Massachusetts at Boston. And she does some work around Asian women in, in, the, in, in, the, in the economy. And I said to her, um, at an event, I was like, you know, Marlene, Black women will talk about being invisible, but Asian women are erased. And she just kind of looked at me. And I, you know, and I say that because if you're doing any work, especially with large data sets like um, the American Community Survey, census data, any ed data, 
if you start by creating race categories, you're going to get black, I said race categories, black, white, Mm-hmm. Asian, Native American, you might get other. And I didn't say Hispanic because Hispanic is not a race in the US. And we're going to skip that whole conversation about racial race being a social construct. Take that as a nod, as a given. You, you, you're going to get those categories. So at the point that you decide not to talk about Asians and mm-hmm. you decide not to talk about Native Americans in a racial conversation, mm-hmm. then it's as if you have said that they don't matter. And folks will often say, but you know, the numbers are so small to have a conversation to which I look and I'm going, and, and I'll say that there are moments when it is, a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sample size problem, right? And economists really will get on you like, What'd you do? Like you had how many folks? But for me, if it becomes a sample issue, then footnote it so that at least I know you thought about me. Mm -hmm. And here is the reason you're not having a conversation about me. But with Wiser, my, my, my real interest was I was tired of like being between the commas, right? It was women except, or it would be a conversation. It was deficit based. And and I thought, you know, I'm more than between the commas and I'm damn sure more than a paragraph for you to be talking about with a deficit lens. So 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 when it comes to data, um, you know, when I ask people to disaggregate data and, and I want to be really clear, like I'm not I'm not the only person in this game talking about disaggregating data. Mm-hmm. Right? So I want to put that front and clear. Urban Institute talks about it. The uh, UN talks about sex, sex disaggregated data. I think what I'm bringing to this data conversation that is different is I'm asking people to disaggregate data um, based on the characteristics that you think influence an outcome. Mm-hmm. And so if you think being Asian, and we know they talk about that as if it is a monolith, and it is not, right? There is a difference between being, um, and I don't literally mean a difference in terms of phenotype, but even your experience in the US is different. If you're Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Southeast Asian, if you are East Indian, and especially coming in East Indian for tech sector work, right? Like it's a different experience if you're Vietnamese, which in the city of Richmond, if I, and hopefully I will get this correct, and, and I'll send you the footnote, but I believe in the city of Richmond, California, the populations that are most at risk with respect to incarceration or having experience with the criminal justice system is Black, Hispanic, Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Right. Not a conversation that you would, would you hear people talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's conversation about Bangladeshi women and how within that Asian population, they are the low wage workers. If, if you continue to aggregate data, you don't see that. You don't get a chance to see how in a particular space, folks that we think of as a group have very different, different experiences. Um, And I feel the same way when we're talking about Hispanics. There is a huge difference between whether you you are a Black Hispanic or what they call a white passing Hispanic. In the data, we don't generally know who's who, but you can tell where folks are coming from by country. And I, I believe that, and I'm again, I'm willing to be wrong on this, that it is folks who are from Venezuela or Argentina and some Colombians who phenotypically... I see anybody we look at and think of as white have better experiences in the U.S. than some Cubans, Puerto Ricans, 
and folks who are Mexican American. And, and so, you know, so it's important that we separate that so we can see um, so we can see the data. So when I hear you, I say all that to say, when I hear you say um, the laziness, you have to have, I think, a certain personality to come out and be willing to push against that. Because yep. if you're in an academic space, it may mean you're not getting tenure. Mm -hmm. If you are in a corporate space, it means you may not be getting a promotion or passed over. And you know, at the end of the day, what people I think really want is you know, when, when you were talking about going to law school, right, to have an understanding of the Constitution and we talk about the Bill of Rights and, and then, you know, that whole notion of the um, to be able to pursue happiness. So much of that in, is grounded in fiscal well-being. Yep. If your money ain't right. right? Like, I, I cannot agree with you more. I, I think it's, it's 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 so true. But, you know, when you think about fiscal well-being, you know, what comes to my mind immediately is is this notion of access. And I think that's something that you've done a lot of work on. Uh, and when I mean access, let's talk about specifically access to education first. And the second type of access, once that's done, is access to employment. Uh, for good reason or for bad, uh, those two have been tied together, at least in the US, as in education is supposed to unlock a path to employment. Why don't we just start with education? As, as a society, what are we doing right today? What's good about how we think about education uh, within the context of the U.S.? Oh, that thing? Wow. <laughs> I'm so used to the wrong. Okay. Um, so so what, what do I think that we're, we're doing right with respect to education? I think what we're doing, I think in many ways we have opened, the ways in which we have opened access. And, and what I mean by that is not just access in terms of not having a segregated higher education system, because that is one. But I do mean access in terms of, for better or worse, right? Like, again, not everything is created equal. But but online education, I think, is has been a good move for some for some people and, and not for everyone. And what I mean by that is this, that there is a huge population in the Department of Education sort of has this term called stopping out. So those are folks who have gone to school and for whatever reason, like they don't come back and you don't see them in usually, I think the way that they track this is through financial aid data, who is applying. So, you know, so you don't see folks in. So I think that what online education, you know, the University of Phoenix and, and spaces of that sort have allowed people, what they've allowed folks to do is to continue to get their educations and have a full life. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by full life is they can have a job and have a family and pursue education. I don't want to have a conversation about whether or not it is, well, I'm not going to get into whether or not it is quality education or not, because I, because in many instances, I think we've already moved away from education really being a value added. And it's more about credentialism. And the reason I say that, that I think it's more about credentialism and not by value added is because of the way I think we increasingly think about education for a job. We don't necessarily think about education 
that it teaches you how to learn, that it teaches you how to ask questions. It teaches you how to how to interrogate like a given situation. So much of education, when I think about for me, it was about building those critical thinking skills, right? Like that Socratic way of learning. I think some of that has gone away. Um, and that when you walk in spaces and you're asking students to think, they're like, what? Right? Like, I think that's probably what we've done bad, but I do think op- opening up, um, there's a sociologist and I do not know her name, don't remember her name, but she she talks about for women, it's called the third shift. So it's like the first shift, you go to work, you come home from work, you take care of your kids and your family. And then when the kids go down, women are coming to online, right? Mm-hmm. And so she called that the third shift. I, I think that's what we have done has been a good thing to allow more people access to education and have their lives. Yep. I think that has been a good thing. So I, I agree with you, giving them the, the, the freedom and flexibility to learn. One of the things that, you know, which I haven't shared with you yet, which what we're trying to do is, is open up that access and say, let's just make it digital first. One of the things we learned very quickly is asking somebody to show up at a certain day at a certain time, that in and of itself is a barrier to access because folks have part-time jobs. There's single moms and showing up at a certain day at a certain time is a luxury. Um, and so we realized that pretty quickly. I think we're, at, fortunately, we're at a, at a time and a day where generally there's still some folks that have issues with computers and internets. They just simply don't even have that larger issue to tackle, but there's a segment of folks that benefit from it. I also agree with you on the role of colleges. I don't know if it should be a tool for credentialing where you look at a utility of of an education as simply a pathway to a first job, but then you hear employers constantly bickering about we have a workforce that is simply unprepared for modern day jobs. There's a skill gap. The skill gap is widening. What's your take on it? So what is what is happening there? What's going wrong? What's your take on that particular challenge? So um, on this notion of the skill gap, I saw an article, I don't know if it's New York Times, Wall Street Journal, where they said, look, when we talk about a teacher shortage, sometimes it's not about, it's literally a teacher shortage, but that people aren't mobile. They're mobile, but they're not mobile. And you you were talking about living in New York and you'll see this, like there are people who live in Brooklyn and Queens, they ain't thinking about coming to Manhattan, right? Like what? I'm going to get on the train and go into Manhattan. Like, why, why would I ever leave Brooklyn? So, mm-hmm. so, so I, there's definitely some truth to the skills gap. But I think more of what the challenge around the skill, skills gap is getting people with skills to relocate to the spaces where those jobs are. Um, I think, and and, I, and, it's, and I'm so happy that you asked this because I was on a, a, a webinar earlier today about racial diversity in tech space. And one of the things that I've often said is, you know, we, we've got, we, we have wrong narratives, right? So much of the narratives about tech space will tell you who can't be in that space. And I was saying to them, I, you know, in high school, I think I had one, one male for geometry. Everybody else for my math classes and my science classes were women. And then I went to a small liberal arts college, North Carolina Wesleyan and Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. My math department were women. One guy, I had one math class from a guy. Now my chemistry classes were men, but my math classes were women. And then I went to Clark Atlanta and I had blacks. When I got to Stanford, I was 26. 
Yes, I was 26 when I got to Stanford. It was the first time that I'd heard that as a Black woman, I was not supposed to be doing math and engineering. And I was like, y'all should have told me this. Right? Like, I'm 26. You should have told me this a long time ago. Right? So I think that as we keep talking about these skills and we we're talking about who should be in a space, we don't think about the narratives that are out there that are constantly reminding folks that these spaces aren't for you, as opposed to, so I'm going to take a slight step back. On one hand, we're telling people, and I think especially little girls, we're like, you can be anything you want, except for you can't be in tech space. But you can do anything you want, except for you can't do math and engineering. Mm -hmm. But you can do any, yeah. So it's like, you know, can we, can we stop this notion about who belongs where? And, and, and while it seems to impact Black and Hispanic communities, I don't think that we think about what it also means for Asian communities in the <laughs> you don't want to be in tech space. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you want to do something else. And folks are like, wait, what? You you're gonna study English? What what like what are you right? You know, so I so I do think that 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 this whole notion of skills, a lot of it is around the narratives. Yeah. We need to start changing narratives to really highlight people who are in these spaces and enjoying it. Yep. Stop telling people these spaces that aren't for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, you know, the thing that we haven't had had a conversation about is just the quality of K through 12, which I really don't want to have a conversation about because <laughs> here's my conversation about K through 12 is that people already know what's needed to mm-hmm. do. I mean, there's goo gobs of research about what are the best practices. There's a paper by, and I'm probably going to get their name wrong, Sandy Darity, Carolyn Tyson, and Dominique, Dominico, something of that sort, where they looked at a school in Western North Carolina just on, on if you treated, taught all the kids as if they were talented and gifted, what would happen, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that tracking is bad, but yet we still track. And I always say to folks, the reason we do this is because Americans do not want to acknowledge that the K through 12 system is our first sorter, right? It's our first, like, it's the first sorting mechanism where we make a decision about who's going to have. Mm-hmm. Because if you really wanted kids to have equal education, then you cut this tracking out. You treat every kid as if you really had expected them to be president of the United States and not just the kids whose parents have money and can afford, right, to, to live in that neighborhood where they're going to be resources. And we don't do that. So yeah. that so so when people are talking about who's not listening, who's not looking at the science and policymakers listen, no, they they don't, because we yeah. really don't want equal education for all. Yeah, it starts early. I echo your sentiment. The problem does start early, especially your formative years. If you're told that that's not for you, you get thrown in. I remember, and I didn't go through high school here. My sister did. I mean, you have all kinds of AP classes and you have classes that are non-AP. I mean, it starts that early, right? I mean, she was one of the two, yeah, I guess, engineering graduates at the University of Massachusetts, an electrical engineering, large school, two women, because that to use the word shit, but that started early. It started very early. Right? <laughs> no, you 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 hit him right. That sugar honey iced tea. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does start early. And I would say to you that that probably for for little girls, it 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 can start way before then, right? I mean, they talk about when when around puberty, the ways in which you start seeing 
girls cower. We, we have the conversation about faculty and you know, so much of how we interact with students matters. And I can remember being in spaces and saying to folks, well, I don't know what y'all were talking about because the women in my class talk and they look at me and then I forget like, but I talk and I look at the women in my class and I expect them to talk and I'm going to like, I give them space to speak. I encourage my students to be wrong and be wrong out loud. And they just, people look at me like, what? And I'm like, look, you got to own your answers no matter what. We don't think about the messages. I think Dove used to have a commercial which they said, you know, if you're a little girl and you're bossy, right? You're, you know, you're not assertive, you're bossy. But we really know, and I think in, I think in the, I think they call it bossy or they made, even went far to say, then you're considered to be a bitch, right? Yeah. And that I saw this through my mind. I was like, why, why are you saying bossy? I think the first word that people would use is a bitch. Yeah. And there used to be this t-shirt that I love and it said, bitch, beautiful, intelligent, thoughtful, charming, and headstrong. Mm -hmm. And I would always say to folks, you know, it's that headstrong part that will get, you know, call somebody to call you a bitch. And it's like, no, I, 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 I know my worth. I know that my opinions and my thoughts have value. Now I'm fully aware as a black woman that my passion, depending on who I'm talking to, comes across as anger. Right. And so I, you know, I, I, I try to contain it, but depending on what the topic it, you know, it just, it just does not, it, it doesn't work there. Now to bring that all the way back to education, we forget how so many of those habits start in the classroom. They start in the ways that, um, and, and I think, I think some of it is subconscious in terms of the values that people bring still about what little girls should say and do and behave, right? Like we're doing that early, how you can answer a question. When we talk about gifted kids and Carolyn Tyson, who is at UNC Chapel Hill in the sociology department, I can remember her telling this story about um, out of her dissertation in the classroom. If you're a little black kid, if you are a gifted child, gifted kids just answer. Right. And they're forever asking why. But now you put some brownness to always just spitting out an answer, always asking why and your behavioral problem. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you look up the definition of a gifted child, that's what gifted kids do. Ask questions. But not if you're brown. If you're brown, you're problem and you're disruptive. And Carolyn Gid talks about this example of a little girl who left her name off a paper mm. and the teacher didn't give her star or something of that sort. And the little girl's devastated and she's crying. And the teacher, you know, you would have thought the teacher would have just said, next time, just put your name on. But that's not that's not what the teacher did. And, and we had this conversation about if she had been a white little girl, mm -hmm. right? that wouldn't have happened. Right. Just again. So I say all that to say that yeah, the ways so much of what we see in society, I mean, education is a first order. It is um, the behavioral. There are studies that talk about kids who are in kindergarten, that for black students and black and brown kids, it's behavioral to teach them, raise your hand when you answer. For mm -hmm. everybody else, you know, they get to not raise their hands. They're really learning alphabets and how to read, not behavior. So that, that kind of stuff just drives me crazy, right, in terms of education, which sounds like I've really moved us away from, you know, thinking about education and the skills shortage. But if your attitude coming in is about the proper way for people to, to behave mm -hmm. and not teaching them, we're going to have a skills gap. You're not teaching people as if everybody is capable of taking any job and that you can nurture any skill. 
Yeah, and do well. Let's just- but, but, but now, now, I'm going to say to you real talk, I, 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 and this is a blog on, on our website, is because math isn't the only path. I, I'm troubled when I see parents who, you know, your kid's getting a B in math and they have them being tutored. And I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, they're getting a B. And it's like, okay, but could you go nurture the other part of your kid? And in the blog, I talk about the MacArthur Genius Award. Okay, Creativity Award, because Cecilia Conrad does not like it being called the Genius Award. They don't give awards just to mathematicians and people who are STEM, mm -hmm. right? They gave an award to Lim Emanuel because he's genius with the words. But we don't, you know, we don't have a we don't have a space that recognizes all gifts. And I think as long as you have that, we're going to continue to have a skills gap. It's interesting. So you you think that there's a sorting issue that is causing the skills gap because you don't have folks that may have otherwise done well in certain segments ushered in that direction. And you have folks that don't want to do it being shoved in that direction. And you end up having a smaller pool and a disengaged pool. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd agree with you there. there. There really is a K through 12 problem. And even if we could wave a magical wand and solve for all of the issues that are around, you know, sorting all of the issues around race, all of the issues around sexual orientation and how folks perceive and react to it, there still is the issue of cost. Uh, that's not going to go away. Even if we've fixed all of this, someone's got to pay, which leads me to my next question. I am troubled uh, and I still have student loans from law school, but I have a, I have a job and I'm, I'm able to make payments. Uh, I know a lot of folks that are not able to. I'm very interested in learning a little more about your perspective because you've spent a lot of time on it. You've, your, your dissertation was on novel ways of <laughs> making these payments and making the math work. I'm troubled by two things. I'm troubled by student loan debt in broadly when it comes to colleges. I'm also deeply troubled by income sharing agreements. Uh, something about it does not sit right. Uh, there's a, a lot of players, there's lots of investor money backing it. this notion that, that it's not debt. And you know, here, here's what bothers me. You already have people crying to the Biden administration and asking them to forgive 10 grand in debt. And then you have all these companies that are you know, venture backed that are saying, hey, sign an ISA and we'll help you get a job. Uh, and so you were in deeper debt, right? For to do what? To learn a set of skills that are primarily for the benefit of the employer. You're not learning critical thinking skills. Let's say you go to a coding boot camp, you might learn a set of skills that might serve you well for two years. My argument has always been if employers are crying about a skill gap, if employers are crying about a talent gap, you should pay as an employer. How is this going to solve issue with access and diversity when you're already burdening a pre-burdened group of people with more debt? What's your take on it? Why are we doing this? Why do we need to be so greedy? Okay, so, so I'm going to start with the first one, the student debt. And, and, and your audience, when they hear, please don't send me a nasty message. <laughs> I am not anti-student loan debt. And here's why. I think that if you cannot make an investment in yourself, then who are you going to invest in? That's one. Now, having said that, I am not anti-student loan debt. I do think it is reasonable to cap it. And I think a reasonable cap is, is not a broad cap. I think that the, the cap should be based on the student's family income. And what I mean by that is if your parents make $20,000 a year, you should not have more than $20,000 worth of student debt. 
right? For it, um, I think that that's that's an appropriate, you know, that's the way that I sort of think about this. Um, and you're right, my dissertation was called an option for investing in finance and human capital. And it looked at my PhD is both econ math, but for the National Science Foundation, I'm a PhD in, math, in mathematics, and my dissertation really focused on on option pricing. I, I came up with a formula for an option, which which is very similar in some ways to ISAs, except for with an option, it can expire worthless. So the notion is you would come to an institution, they would give you a certain amount of money for your education in exchange for a percentage of your income. Yale did this back in the 1970s. It was called the Yale tuition postponement option mm-hmm. or plan, something like that. I think it's why, yeah, option. Now, having said that, mine has a trigger. You look at your income at some point in the future. If it's not higher than the um, the strike price, then it, it expires worthless. Now, ISAs are structured very differently, and and I talk about this in a in a blog on our website, right? That that the deal with an ISA is they talk about it as not a debt, right? They say these are not debt, but anytime you owe somebody money, it is a debt. Mm-hmm. If you go to Purdue and Purdue is the one one school that I know that you know made public that they participate in these um and there's a computer school not Lambda Lambda yeah Lambda right but if you go to Purdue Purdue has these conversations about ISAs and what I thought was interesting is they compared ISAs to a parent student loan mm-hmm. now in my math. I didn't see any place where the ISA was better than than even your parents getting a student loan, which I don't understand why that was a comparison relative rather than the student taking out a loan. But with the ISA, the way that that, um, I have seen the contracts and the way that I shouldn't say the contracts, the way that I've seen the research discussed is this. Minaj, I give you $5,000 coming in. When you sign that ISA, you agree to pay me back X amount of money, period. Yep. There used to be an, uh, um, a group called My Rich Uncle who, who did something very similar to ISAs. It was a black box. You couldn't see what was going on. I think they folded in 2007. But what, um, but what ends up happening is if your rich uncle died the day after graduation and left you money, mm-hmm. you still have to pay what you agreed upon. But if you had a student loan, because interest doesn't start until like 60, 90 days after graduations, perhaps if you paid it off, you paid no interest, right? I think that people miss that in ISAs, right? And they argue that it is an investment. And so Smith, um, Smith's last name is, is escaping me, but the, the gentleman who came out with the Student Freedom Initiative, Richard mm-hmm. Robert Smith, Robert Smith, right? The billionaire Robert Smith, who has a partnership with Morehouse. It, it frightens me to no end because, first of all, it's a student freedom, right? Which which people would be like, oh, I'm going to be free from debt. I'm not going to have a student loan. Oh, no, 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 no. I, you know, I like that term, a rose by any other name or smell is still a rose. <laughs> I don't care what they call it. If it's a financial obligation, it is a debt and it is it is not one that that doesn't benefit the person or the group who's making the investment investment in you, which is why I think that, you know, from that perspective, they're predatory, right? Just in their language, the way that they talk about them. And and when I said that people are like predatory, like, whoa, Rhonda, and it's like, yeah, but if you look up the definition of predatory, predatory basically says, right, like it's always going to benefit the person who is, is lending the money. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's not the case with I. 
ISA. So when you ask about corporations making the investment, you know, part of it, I, I agree with you. I wrote a paper, ooh, I don't even know how long ago, for the National Urban League. And in that, they, you know, they asked me to talk about some K through 12 initiatives. And there are some corporations, and I'm happy to send them to you, like to put in, I'll go look at the article and put them in, in, in the notes, who have been doing that. I think I worry about curriculum base. I worry about corporate sponsorships or scholarships unless they literally, unless they do not come with an obligation to work for the company. Right. And most people are not going to do that. I give you money. It's tied to an obligation to come back and work for me. I, I, I worry about those because I think that they are very similar to what you said. That company is going to have a curriculum and invest in the skills that help them. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that then you have a workforce that's going to have skills that can adjust over time. Right. Definitely. If we think about manufacturing in this in this country, there yep. was a time that if, you know, you could work on an assembly line and you do well. And I hear you with the coding. You know, but the trick with coding is the languages are changing. Yeah. And, and so the question is, unless you're in a space where they're, they're going to continually train you on the new languages, we'll still have a skills gap. That, that's so right. I would like to see corporations just, you know, really make some investment in, in K through 12 so that we have more access for AP classes for everyone, right? That if you want to take the SAT or the AP to be able to go to college, it's not a financial barrier. That they support scholarships for test press for everybody, not just those who parents can afford afford to pay for that. Like, I'd like to see them make those investments there because, you know, some people think that if if you get people better skilled, then they'll be more eligible for academic scholarships, especially in an institution that is need blind. Yep. So so student loan debt within reason is is okay, especially if you're going to a college to develop lifelong critical, you know, thinking skills, skills that'll, you know, serve you for the rest of your life. It's okay. It needs to be pegged to some okay. rational basis. Yeah, right. I mean, so think about it. And then this is what I say to folks. You know, I can't have student loan debt. But if I went out and bought myself, like, I don't know what, you know, right now I'm feeling that I like the poorest panorama and I'm probably not even pronouncing it, but that's a cute car to me, right? Yeah. Like, but if I if I came out with no student loan debt and I went and bought myself a new car, folks are like, whoo, look at you, you're doing well. So even if it's not family income, then let's tie it to something. And I'm gonna bring it back to the data. Let's tie it to something that the data has been telling us folks without debt are buying. Yep. And if it's a house, then let's tie it to the, the median. Fuck, no, that probably wouldn't be a good one, right? <laughs> but maybe, you know, tie it to then the cost of a, the median cost of a car, a new yep. car or something of that sort. Yep. But I think, I do think it's important that we get into the habit of investing in ourselves. And, and, and your take on income sharing agreements is by definition, there are some fundamental issues with it. Not to say that there's, you can't structure them in a meaningful way, but generally speaking, you would, if you see an ISA, ask what questions. Let's say that you had an audience or you have a lot of folks that are out of college, they already have some college debt and they're presented with you know, these, these new boot camps of the world, right? Let's say 10 to $30,000 is what you owe us once you get your first job. You may already have college debt, but I don't care. This is a new program. Here's an ISA. I'm worried that it might end up becoming the norm. I'm seeing a lot of that happening. Uh, Should someone be presented a piece of paper and say, 
because these folks have admission counselors. You'll see a lot of their staff are are former University of Phoenix admissions counselors. It's the, the pretend universities. That's what they are. What questions do you ask before you like put pen to paper and sign the piece of document? Okay. So I hear you on that, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna take us way back. And I think the first thing is we on a broader scale, we need to alter this conversation about student debt and it being perceived as bad debt and a burden. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first part. Now, having said that, if I if I am someone who if someone came to me and they're looking at an ISA, my first question to them is this: What are the terms of the agreement? What is the rate of return? Right? Like, so what are you going to owe them? Because it is a owe. Like, what mm-hmm. are you going to owe them? So that, that's the first thing I'm gonna ask. What do you owe? Then I'm going to ask them, okay, have you done a budget, right? Because you need to sit down and think about a budget. And remember, they're getting a percentage of your income, not a flat rate, like a student loan is a flat rate, right? It's a fixed fixed payment. They're going to get a percentage. And I'm also going to take a step back. The only time your student loan is a percentage of your income is if you're in an income base and income contingent. But even with that, your payment is, is you know, based on the, on the year and it's much smaller. So because they allow you to have some disposable income first before they start looking at what your repayments are. So I'd ask the person set up the budget, know what that payment is. Think about your trajectory in terms of earnings, right? Because that's the conversation that folks are not thinking about. What's your trajectory in terms of earning? Mm-hmm. Because depending on your trajectory, you may very well end up paying you may very well end up paying way more money than you would have paid if you had taken a loan and the way that we think about a traditional student loan. They're generally also capped in terms of their payment, right? Yep. But they're going to get, you know, there there's a certain amount that you, th- those are, I mean, those are my big questions for them. I wouldn't tell the person, I would say ISAs aren't my preference, but if you really are looking at them, set up your budget, Think about your trajectory for your income. And remember, they're going to get a percentage based on what you made the previous year in the next year. Mm-hmm. And as your earnings go up, so are your payments to them. They're Got gonna, it. and then you want to ask the standard: is there a prepayment penalty? Right? Can you pay this off early and get this, this off your back? Those are the two things. And then to have a conversation with someone who had an ISA with that company to see how it operated, right? Like what information did you turn in? Did they really honor that contract? Mm-hmm. Right? Those are those are the questions that, that I would ask. I wouldn't tell somebody to run, right? Yep. Because because I think that if anybody who's looking at ISA ISAs are looking at them because they've been allured because they tell you they're not debt, right? And 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 the whole idea is this is a financial obligation. A financial obligation is a debt. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, th- I think those are reasonable questions to ask. You know, there may be there may be a way to structure them so that it's not as predatory as it could be. Oh no, I think they're always going to be predatory, right? Like, let me be real clear. Like, I'm not so sure there's a way to structure them for them not to be predatory. But what I but what I do think is for some people, mm-hmm. and I'm going to put good in quotation marks. They're going to be good choices. Be- yeah, because the the a, a thing about debt is this: is debt isn't just this financial obligation that you have to somebody in a fiscal sense. It's also the way that it makes you feel. Yeah. Right. And if you feel heavily burdened by debt, 
you know, that puts you in a very different space. So if somebody engages in an ISA fully informed, right? You know, econ like to talk about asymmetric information, fully informed. If you engage fully informed, then I'm like, okay. But I think what we have is folks who aren't fully informed when but they're going to, but why would someone that's making you sign an ISA be, you know, incentivized to fully inform the sign or especially they're not, I mean, these are not regulated instruments. I, I don't, I see a lot of folks that sign ISAs actually traditionally come from disenfranchised backgrounds. I don't see the typical upper middle-class white male signing an ISA. Okay. When I see signing ISAs, these are a lot of folks that are minorities, a lot of folks that are career shifters, women, they're signing ISAs. Yeah, what are they telling you, right? They're probably telling you they're signing it because they didn't want debt. Because they don't view it as debt. Yeah, because that's what they told them. They said it's not debt. Right. And that and I think for me, that's the biggest part around the ISAs. It's not for me. It's not the structure. It's not the investment. It is that they sell these as that they're not. It's not a debt instrument. It's an investment in the person. Right. And so when you're talking about these communities, these are the same communities that we're hearing in the media that are burdened by student loan debt. So if you're telling if I'm hearing that, oh, my God, the black community is disproportionately has a disproportionate amount of student loan debt. And then here comes somebody that says, oh, but this isn't a debt. Right. This isn't a loan. Yeah. Right? If you don't get a job, you don't pay us. Or if you aren't making X amount of money, then, you know, you're not making much money, then we don't get much of a payment. <laughs> that right? Yeah. Because that's what they tell you. Yeah. But what most folks don't know is, but you can get the same setup through the federal government through an income contingent student loan or income based student loan. And folks are like, yeah, but that'll be 25 years. Okay. Well, it yeah. might be a payment for 25 years. But then I, then I want to ask you is, is this? You can pay that off early and you know exactly what your payoff is. So if you don't want to pay for 25 years, don't pay for 25 years. Yeah. But you know what that payment is going to be because it's fixed. Now, somebody out there is going to say, but you know the same thing with an income base. I mean, with an ISA. And I would say you're absolutely right because the investor tells you upfront what their return is. The mm-hmm. difference being if I paid it off the day after I graduate, I still owe you your return. With a loan, I'm only paying for as long as I have it, right? The interest that accrues is only accruing as long as I owe you a debt. And mm-hmm. that to me is the biggest difference. No, this is this is all very helpful. Thank you so much, Rhonda. For yeah, you're quite welcome. You should have told me you wanted to talk about ISAs, man. We could have been talking about them because they, you know, they they worry. They really do. They really do worry me. And I think that the challenge is because they've done them in in Chile and had a reasonable response, and 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 they were slick. The 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 interview that was on 60 Minutes or something, they talked to a young white woman who had gotten the, I think it's called the Boilermaker something out of Purdue, right? That's who, so again, you've got this white woman who was talking about having this need and taking the ISA. So yeah. when you got a, somebody who's white and a woman, then everybody else is like, but see, this white woman took it. Surely it's got to be okay for the brown community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm horrified at two levels. The the, the college level ISA is, is horror story one. Horror story two is the post-college one, right? Whatever debt you had, however you paid your way out of college, now you have all these folks that are sprouting with these programs, these boot camps, these these training plans that'll, you know, teach you something for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is that they teach you. And then there's another ISA. 
And then who's benefiting on the back end? It's an employer that has a highly skilled person that can hit the ground running on day one, and they're reaping the benefits. What I'm trying to solve for is, employers, why don't you just pay? Right, just just pay for the training, pay for the programming without any, you know, without any obligation that they have to come and work for you. Just think of it as a investment in the workforce in general, because then you'll stop complaining. These folks will come and train, and you'll make more money. You really will. Also, do you want to hire someone that's starting a job with a feeling that they have to pay whatever they you pay them to somebody else? Like that's such a shitty way to start a first job or a second yeah, yes. job. That's yeah, and I, I, you know what, I, you know, I, I hear you. What I hear you saying is, where, when are companies going to, to offer some fiscal goodwill so that society as a whole will be better off? And um, when you have a workforce that's educated with the skills that you want without an obligation, then what you'll get is you know, the other thing that economists like to talk about is in terms of selection is you know that the people who come to work for you come to work for you because they want to work for you, not because they're obligated to you, right? And I think it also from an employer standpoint, now that you're saying that means you now really get to from this pool of folks who are better skilled, select better workers for your company. And and Minaj, I think that's the conversation that we've not not been having. We should be having. All I'm saying is you can't speak out of one side of your mouth and say, hey, I want a diverse talent. We need more minority folks. We need more women. But then on the other hand, make them pay for the entrance ticket. I mean, that is so messed up at so many levels. I can't even begin to start talking about it. But this is this is great. America capitalism at its best. <laughs> Thank you so much. One last thing before we sign off. Our audience is, is, is business leaders, hiring managers, and a lot of folks that are early career professionals. How can, how can they join in and contribute to the causes that you're so passionate about? You know, I'm I'm almost scared to answer that question because based on what I've said, some people might be like, no. (laughs) Okay, do it. it. My organization is the Women's Institute for Science, Equity and Race. Our website is www.wiserpolicy.org. And it is um, called Wiser Policy because that's what we advocate for, wiser and more inclusive public policy. And if you go to our website, there is a contact us, which will send an email for someone at our organization um, to participate in. If there are any economists who are listening, we have partnered with Howard University for the inclusive peer on-site and distance mentoring program. So we're looking for both mentors and we're looking for corporate sponsors to participate in the program. So I, I appreciate you appreciate you asking me that. We'll be five next month. So I am I am super excited to have started something, you know, in, in the sense that most entrepreneurials do, right? With my own money in a space where people enter with millions and that, you know, I somehow I've managed to take care of myself five years and now have an organization that people are beginning to pay attention to. It is a it's um it's a really good feeling and it lets me know as as I say it lets me know that we're well on our way to building a wiser generation of women so so thank you for asking absolutely Rhonda uh, the the least we can do and, and and thank you again for for taking your time this has been such a such a joy to speak to you ditto I hope you'll stay in touch both in LinkedIn and elsewhere we'll do we'll do okay absolutely. have a good evening you too bye bye. Thank you for listening to The Ramped Podcast. To access our show notes, The Ramped Platform, or to become a corporate partner, visit www.rampedcareers.com or email us at sales at This podcast is brought to you by Ramped. 
Ramped is on a mission to democratize job access through learning and career discovery. Until next time.